I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. We want to provide a quick update for this episode. We're adding this on the evening of November 23rd to say that this episode was recorded before the firing of Melissa Barrera from Scream 7. We want to say that we support the call to boycott Splygoss Media Group. And we want to just add that we would have a different context for this had we talked about it after. We're going to keep our original conversation up for transparency and to have that be a moment of reflecting on how we can think about the things that we talk about and learn and grow and and take accountability for that. We also want to encourage any of our listeners, if we ever speak about a show or a filmmaker or anyone involved in a show that we talk about, and you feel like we're missing some context, please DM us at baddad.raddad on Instagram. Um, we always want to have the most informed conversation that we can, but sometimes we just haven't learned the things we need to learn, and we are always happy to have people help us learn. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week for crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Welcome to episode 92. Just a friendly reminder, we did something cool and covered all of the Hunger Games movies, including the latest song, uh, or the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Yep. Very long title. But we covered all of them and just released a rad rap where we unpack all of our thoughts and feelings about them. So you can go listen to that right now. It is spoiler filled. So make sure you're well versed in the Hunger Games. But if you don't care, go right into it. Speaking of going right into it, let's get into the Smackaroon as we watch this week. We kick things off by going out to our favorite place, Metro Cinema. And we watch the 1992 drama music romance film, Farewell, My Concubine. It was directed by Cage Chen, and it was written, well, it's based on a novel, which was written by Piqua Lee, who also wrote the screenplay and was also written with Wei Lu. It stars Leslie Chung as Cheng Dai as Chen Dai Yi, or Doozy, Feng Yi Zhang 
as Duan Zalu, also known as Shatu, and Gonli as Juxian, and Yugi as Master Yuan. Synopsis. Two boys meet at an opera training school in Peking in 1924. Their resulting friendship will span nearly 70 years and endure some of the most troublesome times in China's history. What do you think of this one? So this is on the letterbox top 250. Yes. Um, it's long. I think it's three hours long. Yeah. It was, and it was a nice matinee we went to. Of yeah, this one. with a really, really good crowd. Um, I didn't really know much about it. Me neither. I just knew that it had been remastered. And when something's been remastered, often it's playing, especially at these like art house cinemas mm-hmm. or independent cinemas. And so a few of the people that I follow on Letterboxd had recently watched it and liked it. So I was like, let's go see it. Um, first thing I'll say is it's beautifully shot. Oh yeah, gorgeous. Like the aesthetics of it are absolutely phenomenal. And as the synopsis says, it spans 70 years. So seeing kind of the shifts in the aesthetics and what remains the same through those 70 years is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I like an epic that's based on relationship. Yeah. Rather than like history. Even though history is clearly a part of this, but it's not Gladiator. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not focused on the events in history, but more so how the events intertwine into the lives of yes. our main characters. So even though I typically wouldn't be someone that is drawn to a more historical and like epic scale film, the fact that what the film is doing is tracing the relationship between these two men across this time actually does really appeal to me. Mm-hmm. And I really, really liked that aspect of the film. What I will say about it though, is this is like a trauma overload film. Yeah. It's I I've described it in my notes as gorgeously heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. There's some difficult content throughout. And like, it doesn't ever really let up. So you know, when I, I, I did actually quite like this movie and I think I liked it a little bit more than you, not that you didn't like it, but I quite liked it, Mm -hmm. but it reminded me of what I like about the book, a little life Mm. by Hanya Yanagihara, which like I used to just kind of uncritically recommend people and then realized like, Oh, this is like an intensely traumatic Mm. book. And perhaps that level of trauma overload is not cool. (laughs) Yeah. And I kind of felt that way about this movie too, that it's just like trauma after trauma after trauma um, and while I am drawn to and like stories like that, I'm not necessarily proud of the fact that I'm drawn to and like stories like that. And I would put a big caveat on anyone who's interested in this film that it is like super traumatic. And that seems to be like a goal of it is mm-hmm. to be like devastatingly upsetting in relation to what happens to the characters. Yeah. And I think that's fair. I'm I'm very similar to you. I, I also find enjoyment in stories like this. And I, I also really uncritically <laughs> love A Little Life and would recommend it to people. But I think that a reason, at least for me, of why I am drawn to stories like this is it is, they typically are just, very complex looks at humanity. Yes. And what make a person a person and the people and the people surrounding them. And it's just such a character study. 
And we've spoken many times on this show of that's just our jam. Really great characterization and using characters as a conduit to also focus on other things going on in the world when it's done really well, like it is here, works really well for me. Yeah, this was a film um, like with Pan's Labyrinth, which we covered last week, that I could see there being even more richness to if a person watching it understands or has an interest in either the history of Peking opera or the history of politics in China and or. Mm -hmm. Um, Because like you said earlier, this isn't a film about the political landscape of China over 70 years, but that is an integral part of what's going on with the characters. It's just not the focus of the film. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's really smart way to get someone like me more interested in a film that has those elements because Mm. um, ashamedly when I hear a film is like, History is part of the genre. I'm like, oh, honk shoe. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, did you know this was uh, the Palme d'Or winner? I didn't. Yeah, it was the Palme d'Or winner um, in 1992. Mm. Controversial film um, in its home country of China because it was uh, banned. Yeah. And they wanted particular cuts, and eventually it was released with 14 minutes of the film cut out. Um, and I think that for a long time, I could be wrong on this, but what I was understanding is that for a long time, that was kind of the version that you would get anywhere. Mm. Um, and that this re-release has those 14 minutes back in it. Mm. Um, also, did you recognize like our lead or one of our two leads, Leslie Chung, uh, is a frequent collaborator with Wong Kar Wai. So he's in happy together. Right. I'm, I'm like, I recognize this person. <laughs> Which is sense. interesting because, uh, He's a Cantonese speaker, like a Hong mm. Kong based actor. Um, and so actually all of his lines were dubbed in the film, mm. which maybe we're not picking up on because we don't speak Mandarin and um, are focusing on the subtitles, but it's not his voice speaking the lines in the film really? because he wasn't uh, well versed enough in Mandarin. But then on top of that, even if he was speaking Mandarin, he wouldn't have sounded like a native Mandarin speaker, which the character is meant to be. That's really impressive, the the dubbing work, because I didn't notice it. The only time I noticed it was with the singing. I agree. When it w- I was like, it doesn't seem like that's actually him singing, but I was like, ah, I mean, fair enough. So but, yeah, well, well done in terms of that dub. Well, and made like even more impressive, like while the singing wasn't flawless, I'm going to assume that, in this case, then somebody was dubbing over his voice and then also somebody else was dubbing over the singing. So that's a, that's a lot of dubbing. Perhaps. I'm not sure. But yeah, I think it, I mean, I think it was well done, but perhaps if you are a Mandarin speaker, it'd be something that you you notice more. It'd be, I mean, well, well, well in the future, maybe we'll show this film to one or both of our Mandarin speaking nibblings and yeah, not when they're foreign to... <laughs> So what do you think of the dubbing? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of Farewell My Concubine, the super traumatic movie? Do you uh do you like? Did the did the dub work? I'm four. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely what Remy would say. Yeah. <laughs> like the time we asked or I asked our eleven year old niece, so do people at your school vape? And her response was, We're eleven. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think we're doing? I was like, Yeah, that's why I was like, do they? I'm curious. Oh. <laughs> um yeah, I th- I think you kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier. I I did like this film. I just feel like it didn't fully open itself up to me on this viewing. 
but I so appreciated it and the story it was telling and the angle and the lens it chose to tell this story. And it did have some really impactful stuff. Like it is rife with trauma and traumatic situations and scenarios and a lot of emotional ups and downs and complexity. So I really did enjoy it, but I feel like on a subsequent viewing, maybe a few years down the road that it can, it could really hit a little bit harder. But I mean, that is a totally me thing. Cause the, like you said, it was an awesome crowd to see this with. Everybody was really respectful and locked in and which is awesome for a three hour movie nowadays <laughs> to have a modern crowd in a movie theater be so locked in. But yeah, I enjoyed it. How'd it make you feel? Drawn into the epic and aesthetically astounding tale of the two characters. Nice. Uh, made me feel, while not fully drawn in, appreciative of its craft and story. The second film we saw this week was also at Metro Cinema. Um, we were in a big, I've heard it's good, I'll go see it, even though I know nothing about it, mood. <laughs> yeah. Which often happens to us at Metro because they curate such strong, strong content that we haven't necessarily always heard of. We went and saw the 1982 documentary slash music film, Koyanis Gatsi. It was directed by Godfrey Reggio and written by him as well as Ron Frick and Michael Honig. The synopsis for this is a collection of expertly photographed phenomena with no conventional plot. The footage focuses on nature, humanity, and the relationship between them. What did you think of Koyana Scotsy? I thought you were going to do, and it stars, the world? <laughs> People? <laughs> Um, I mean, it's a word that we've been saying all week because the, the music in this has a piece that just says, and we've just been singing it to each other all week. I really didn't know what I was in for with this film. No, I didn't either. I literally <laughs> knew nothing about it. Um, and it took a while to kind of find my bearings of, I'm waiting for the voiceover to kick in and somebody to start talking about the earth and manufacturing and pollution and population control and all this stuff, but none of that. It's all just music and incredible footage, which completely immersed me and compelled me the whole runtime. Again, a real gift to have a super locked in crowd because this feels like the type of film that, you know, and we've used the language of this, I think on the show, but for sure I've used it in conversations and in uh, my writing on Letterboxd that like there's certain films that you need to sink into that like you won't mm. likely be able to enjoy them or get the experience that's being offered to you by the filmmaker if you don't get to kind of sink into and just become taken over by it. Yeah. And if there's folks or just conditions of watching, it can happen at home too. Like certainly happened with us where we're watching a film and our cat's being a bug and we just like can't get engaged or all of a sudden someone starts like mowing the lawn or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Like it can happen anywhere. But this is the type of film that had it not been such a great audience, I don't know that I would have been able to just melt into it the way that I eventually did. And I agree with you. It took like, because I didn't really know what I was getting into. I knew it was a documentary, but that's all I knew. It took a little bit and kind of once it moved from the footage of just landscape into I think it was some footage of like oil refi refineries and mm -hmm. kind of started to get into its thematic points. Mm -hmm. I was all in. Yeah. No, me too. I'm like, oh, this is what it's doing. I see. And it's so interesting to me because I feel like 
doing that shift and the first shift from nature into man-made and man's destruction of nature um, and it being around the oil industry as an Albertan, you feel that just yeah. because you've grown up around that Alberta means oil <laughs> and it's, it, it was the biggest industry and it is such a hot button topic for so many people, especially more recently politically. Um, I mean, it always has been, but just maybe I'm just more immersed in it now. But well, we're, we're, you know, as a, we are people living in Alberta who are hearing both sides of it, right? Like the, well, we need oil yeah. for our economy and we need oil for jobs. And then of course the like economic and uh, other considerations about like indigenous land and um, pipelines and all of that. Whereas other folks don't necessarily have both things going on at once, which is like, this is historically a source of income for the place that you live. Yeah. Right. So, so we hear about this all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and so like that contrast and that being the first thing you see, it just, I feel like it hits a little bit different when you're from a place that deals in that exact thing. Um, and I, I love that this was just sort of beauty to emphasize the chaos of the world and humans impact on it and it just made me so reflective of state of the world stuff well there's something incredibly profound about a film that doesn't like a documentary that doesn't have any voiceover yeah that isn't trying to tell you exactly what to think and take away from it um on wikipedia it's described as a visual tone poem Ooh. And I really liked that. Visual tone poem. That's just fun to say as well. But it feels accurate. Yeah. Um, like it's, and we've seen films like this before and we've talked about it before. I think this came up when we talked about Ennis Men mm. quite a while ago that this feels like a film that you could see in an art gallery. 100%. For some reason, it really made me think of um, when we were in Toronto uh, two summers ago and we went to um, the the big museum there. Oh, yeah. Oh. Uh, Ontario Museum of Art. I don't know. Um, I think it's the OGA, the Ontario Gallery of Art. Something like that. Who knows? But when we were there, um, they had an exhibit where like you go into this dark space and you sit down and it's like a volcano, I think. Like yeah. it simulates. It, yeah, it was made with Yonsei from yes. Cigaros. <laughs> yeah, and it has like smells and feelings and sounds and, and lighting. I don't know why it made me think of that, but it did. And I'm like, I, f I feel like that could have, you could have turned the corner and gone into a room that was playing Koyana Skatsi and they would have felt like they're in league with each other and exploring some similar things through different artistic mediums. Mm -hmm. Yet I'm very glad that this film isn't one I saw in an art gallery because it probably would then be something that I came and sat for a portion of and left. And mm -hmm. this film like when it ended, I think I just, when we got into the car, I just said, wow. Yeah. Like that was just profound. Yeah. Like I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like you have to sink into this movie and you have to let it just consume your mind and melt your brain. And yeah, it, it would not be out of place at a museum, but it wouldn't let you have that experience. I think something you and I, I feel like we, we chatted about it, but 
I would really love to go to like an orchestral live performance of this where yeah. it's like pre being projected up on the screen, but having like live music playing the score because the music is phenomenal. Well, it's Philip Glass. So very yeah. famous um, musician. And and they have done that. Like uh, Philip Glass has toured and played it live with the film in the background, um, which I would totally go see. This was so cool to see in the theater and just like existential and beautiful and maddening. And one of the key techniques that it has, aside from this like gorgeous footage of both natural landscape, urban landscape, technology, and just like humans Mm -hmm. is um, very purposefully shifting from sped up footage to like slowed down footage. So playing with the tempo of the footage itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, in line with, what's happening with the music. And so I didn't feel like the film was just a condemnation of humanity. There was actually some really beautiful moments that like contrasted a lot of the footage of just like masses of people that would like slow down and we would see someone's face Mm -hmm. and like they would become an individual in the midst of all of this mass humanity. And I, I really like um, Reggio has said about the film, quote, that it's up to the viewer to take for themselves what it is that the film means. Mm -hmm. And I love a piece of art that trusts its audience to make meaning of it, even if that meaning isn't directly what the filmmaker was saying. And I think that this is the type of film that will continue to mean things in, in ways that expand as the world goes on, like this film would have felt a particular way in 1982 if I saw it when I wasn't alive, but had Mm. I been alive, that feels different in 2023, perhaps because of the fact that it is still so resonant. Mm -hmm. But considering that it was made in 1982 and it's still resonant in 2023 creates a particular kind of feeling in me. Yeah. That couldn't necessarily be predicted in 1982. So I just really, really love that. And, um, Ron Frick, the guy who did uh, a lot of the visuals, a lot of the um, actual filming, can't find the words. Mm -hmm. Um, He said, quote, I just shot anything that I thought would look good on film. It was all the same from my standpoint. I just thought that shot the form of things. But then that must have been a gargantuan task of editing that footage. Oh, totally. Because there's a lot of sequences in this, too, that are like time lapse footage. So there's also a degree of patience that had to happen with, <laughs> with him shooting stuff as well. Yeah, no, it's, it's beautiful. And I, I don't feel like it's, I mean, I, I can, you could probably trace lines back to like 2001, like just with orchestral music playing over top of some beautiful imagery or some thought provoking imagery. And I, 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 I totally saw linkage there. And yeah, I can totally see myself taking something completely different away or feeling a different way about it, revisiting this when I'm in my 40s. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really impressive to have something that doesn't have any dialogue in it. It's not really telling you how to feel. Like even some of the music cues can be on the surface level kind of joyful and uplifting but what it's showing is kind of thought provoking and pushing you into the complete opposite direction. And that's super powerful for something coming from 1982 and can still feel like you said, kind of so resonant 
now and will probably continue to feel resonant in the future. This feels like a movie that I might want to watch once a year as just like a philosophical existential (laughs) human check-in on how I'm feeling about the world. Yeah. Um, It'd be a great contrasted and yet thematically aligned pairing with like how to blow up a pipeline. Like I feel (laughs) like they are approaching similar thematic content in very, very different tonal ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing that came out of this was just the realization that this film is so well known and the music from it is so well known and it's been featured in a lot of things that we like (laughs) and we just didn't know it. So Gilmore Girls, not that I love Gilmore Girls, but we have watched it all. Uh, It's been featured in The Simpsons numerous times, apparently, Mm. in Scrubs twice, uh, in Watchmen, Mm. and then also um, in 20th Century Women. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it's um, just like stills from the film. Oh, okay. But yeah, like a lot of of uh, media that we have engaged in are really like, um, and interestingly, it was out of print for almost all of the 90s. So it there was a long period of time where you couldn't access it. Mm. Something that'll come up again later <laughs> in this episode. Um, and so what a gift to be able to not just see it, but see it in the theater and very, very grateful for it. It was incredible. I don't really know how to explain it other than breathtaking and profound um as a last point because it really merges into the next film that we're going to talk about uh this film was presented which i feel like was that something that really happened a lot because i feel like it's a big thing now where it's like james wan is presenting but he didn't direct it yeah um this was presented by francis ford coppola um because and i thought this was a really beautiful and interesting story he saw an early version of the film at a like private viewing before it was ready to be released Mm. and was just so impacted by it and said that he found, thought it was quote important for people to see it. And so he attached his name to it so that it would be seen by more people. Mm. So I love that. I feel like so often now when there's a presenting, it feels like a studio decision. Mm -hmm. Like we're going to say, we're going to ask James Wan to put his name on this so that more people will go see the nun or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, but this feels like a genuine, like, I am somebody with a name and I think this film is so important and I'm going to put my name on it so that more people see it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really cool. I don't I don't know if I've ever seen anything that Francis Ford Coppola has done. Um, but Not The Godfather? I have seen The Godfather, um, but I was really young and I don't remember it. But I'm thankful that he put his name on this and that um, people have seen it and that we got a chance to see it because it was incredible. Yeah. Five out of five. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. How did Koyana Skatsi make you feel? Completely captivated and moved. How did it make you feel? Existentially overwhelmed, but in the most profound way. So speaking of Coppola's. <laughs> <laughs> we finally got to watch the 2023 bio film Priscilla. It was directed by Sofia Coppola. It was also written by Sofia Coppola based on the book Elvis and Me, written by Sandra Harmon and Priscilla Presley. It stars Kaylee Spaney as Priscilla, Jacob Elordi as Elvis, and that's all that matters. Synopsis. The unseen side of a great American myth in Elvis and Priscilla Presley's long courtship and turbulent marriage from a German army base to his estate at Graceland. What do you think of Priscilla? 
I am really glad if you listened to the episode um, some time ago that we did leave the theater the first time we tried to see this because we we made it. I'm going to say about 10 minutes into the movie mm-hmm. and we're like, we haven't been able to pay attention and people are talking. This movie is so quiet mm-hmm. and Sofia Coppola is not telling you what to think. Mm-hmm. She's presenting Priscilla's life from one point to another point in a series of vignettes, essentially. Yeah. That the viewer can decide what they want to do with. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very quiet. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so thankful that we tried a round two that was mostly a success. Um, weekday matinees are are the the way to do it, which is hard to do when you've got a nine to five job. Mm-hmm. Um there was a couple ladies who were a little chatty at some moments, but not consistently. Um, for the movie itself, though, I really liked it. Yeah, me too. As I was reflecting on it and taking taking my notes, I I was even realizing that I liked it even more than I initially thought I was. I thought I was. And I think it's really interesting because we've had a lot of talk about biopics on this show. And how we feel about biopics, especially how you feel about biopics. Yes. Go see Jackie, um, our episode on Jackie, for my very extended thoughts on biopics. (laughs) But I was looking forward to this, and I think it's great that this exists because last year we got the movie Elvis from Baz Luhrmann, who we we didn't watch it but who wanted to put Elvis on this pedestal and showcase him even more than he's already been showcased throughout history. And I just love that this, even just from the trailers and the fact that it was coming out from Sofia Coppola and it's called Priscilla, it just felt like it was going to be showing the side that's often buried, especially about famous men. And it's going to kind of dismantle an idol a little bit. And I really love that. Yeah, there's a really beautiful quote I found from a reviewer named Nicholas Barber who speaking specifically to the fact that Baz Luhrmann's Elvis came out last year and, you know, Austin Butler was talked about a lot and he received an Oscar nomination and right. Yeah. Um, so Nicholas Barber said, quote, that Priscilla is in stark contrast to the tone of Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. We need both films, I would argue. Last year's frenzied act of worship and now this irreverent response, all the more potent for being so still and small. Mm-hmm. Because they're, they're, I mean, I haven't seen Elvis, but I have seen Baz Luhrmann films and I've seen the trailer mm-hmm. and they feel like two sides of a coin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how they explore this figure, right? This historical and pop culture figure now to get to the the idea of biopic there's something about Sofia Coppola's biopics and I'm thinking Marie Antoinette which we've covered uh, more recently on the show and this that just don't feel like biopics to me mm-hmm. and that I just don't have a problem with and I'm trying to put my finger on what it is because we you know when we covered Killers of the Flower Moon I I felt like there was these elements of it that I really liked where I didn't feel like it was trying to be a biopic or a historical pick, but then it would move into these elements that felt like, Oh, we're trying to get the facts accurate. And I think that's 
what it is. I, I'm, I definitely want to hear your thoughts on it too, but I think looking specifically at Priscilla, I don't get the impression that Sofia Coppola is trying to be accurate, that she's trying to be like every single thing happened this exact way. I feel like she's presenting the truth of Priscilla, mm -hmm. which isn't necessarily any kind of objective truth, but it is a truth because there is no such thing as objective truth, especially when it's a representation, mm -hmm. right? The Elvis film is not objective truth either. Yeah. Even though I haven't seen it. And I feel like, you know, I was thinking of the language that Charlotte Wells uses in relation to after Sun, where she says it's emotionally true to her. It's an emotional memoir but that doesn't necessarily mean that everything in this film happened the way that it happened. And that's what I think about Sofia Coppola's films. Of course, Priscilla is different than Marie Antoinette because Priscilla Presley's alive and was a producer on the film and they had conversations and it's based on a book that she, um, that she wrote in tandem with Sandra Harmon. Was that her name? Um, but this feels like a film that is emotionally true. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I think that there's something about the way that Sofia Coppola presents these as, I think you called them like vignettes. Like it's kind of moments that are pulled out of the history of this person's life. And they're kind of horror moments that led to the next thing, which led to the next thing. And even if those things are a time jump away from each other, it's still the, it's still stands out in the history of the world or of these people. I was watching earlier today. Um, there was uh, vanity fair did like a notes on this notes on a scene. And it, it was with Sofia Coppola, Kaylee, Sp uh, Kaylee Spaney and Jacob Elordi. And they were talking about a specific scene in Elvis's office where he throws a chair. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was interesting because like Sofia Coppola was saying like she, when she was talking with Priscilla Presley about, about this and, and that it happened, like Priscilla was just like very forthcoming of just like, he didn't throw it at me threw it past me. And I just, and she just said uh, when she was talking with Kaylee Spaney, cause she was just kind of trying to figure out like, how, how did you react to this? Like what, what, what's going through your head during this, this moment, but also like during this period in Elvis's life. And I thought that this was just kind of heartbreaking that Priscilla Presley said like she was constantly feeling like she always had to try and lift Elvis up during this period mm -hmm. of his life. And that was her main, her main focus throughout this period, which I think is captured really well and accurately in this film is that Priscilla is there to help, help Elvis through his homesickness and help him through writer's block or keeping the keeping down the fort while he's away and you see as time goes on like that's not a life mm -hmm. that is sustainable for forever yeah i think it's it's really telling that um when priscilla presley was asked like how she feels about the film her kind of main soundbite is the film is right on mm -hmm. that like there's an accuracy to it Right. Which is mm -hmm. something that, again, going back to After Sun by Charlotte Wells, like her mother was like, Frankie Corio seems like like I could mistake her for you when you were young. Not because they look identical, but there's just like a core truth to it um, mm -hmm. through this artistic representation. Now, 
Lisa Marie Presley saw it prior to her death or mm. like saw versions of it or portions of it and was not happy mm. with this film, which made me think about, you know, considering that it's based on Priscilla's book. She was a producer on the film. She's spoken. She's spoken about how like it's a difficult film to watch, but that she feels it portrays what her book portrayed and, and how she thinks of and experienced this time in her life. And it just made me think about how children, especially children of divorce, and I'm speaking as a child of divorce, mm -hmm. with a father that didn't always do great things, um, can experience those events so differently than their parents, mm. such to the point that you feel like Lisa Marie Presley like said she was going to like make it a personal campaign to slander this film because it portrayed her father in such an unkind way in her mind, which is so interesting because first of all, I think that speaks to the fact that Priscilla Presley cared deeply about her daughter loving her father and having a relationship with her father despite and because of the experiences that she had with him as her husband. Mm -hmm. um, but as much as there's parts of this film that made me, make me feel so sick and so sick and sad for like the character of Priscilla and knowing she is a real person. I didn't feel like the film villainized Elvis. I felt like it was a really profoundly, quietly complex exploration of a troubled person acting in troubled ways. Yeah. It's very clear that Elvis has a lot of trauma and things to work through and that he was thrust into the spotlight at such a young age. I mean, I don't really know his history, but like this, this person, like the Colonel Tom Hanks, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, was just like trying to take advantage of him. And he was beholden to these people telling him what to do all the time while trying to also do his own thing. And even just him seeking the connection with Priscilla is somebody that's, looking for a, a way out or a way to get out of a current headspace or a current situation. And it seems throughout the film, he's constantly trying to do that in different ways with different outlets. And I think use, using the lens of Priscilla, it, it just heightens that without having to make another biopic about Elvis. I think that you, the way that they focus on Priscilla and the interactions that she has and the seam. I, I, I found like the time jumps really seamless. It just really as an audience member makes you feel just how tired you would get of having to go through that. Even if it's somebody you love of how it could just wear you down and how you have to live in like some, in this quiet discomfort and, and sometimes the, the danger of that quiet discomfort yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I think I'm just grateful for this film and how it represented the story. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a vulnerable, quiet, complex film, and I think Kaylee Spaney and Jacob Bellardi are phenomenal in mm -hmm. it. I have um two quotes from Sofia Coppola about the casting of them. So the first, and I really like what she has to say about casting Jacob Bellardi as Elvis. So she said, "quote I thought nobody was gonna look quite like Elvis." 
But Jacob has that same type of magnetism. He's so charismatic and girls go crazy around him. So I knew he could pull off playing this type of romantic icon. So I love that she wasn't like, oh, he needs to sound and look exactly like Elvis. No, he needs to feel the way Elvis felt. Mm -hmm. And I think that's done phenomenally. Um, Mm -hmm. And I hope Jacob Elordi eventually gets to play some characters who aren't. (laughs) Yeah. So not great. Um, because he's clearly a talented actor. We're going to be seeing Saltburn um, later this week, and we'll be covering it on next week's episode. And I think he also plays a mm-hmm. nasty, nasty in that, but I think we'll see. And then Sofia Coppola said about Kaylee Spaney, quote, the character goes from age 15 to 27 over the course of the film, so she had to be able to act and age across a big span of time. It was really important to me to have the same actress playing Priscilla at those different stages of her life. And I think Kaylee can pull it off. She's such a strong actress and she also looks very young. Yeah, absolutely. And it helps, too, that the height difference between the two of them is it it just makes her look so small. (laughs) Yeah. And there's just so many things. I mean, that's the thing. They meet when she's so young. She's 15 years old when Priscilla meets Elvis and as an audience, we all know that it's not okay and that some of the things and decisions that are made by the adults in this film are also not okay. It, you, you don't have a good feeling. At least I didn't as an audience member. I'm like, uh, I, don't, I don't know, man. But I think that's what I like so much about the film is because it's presented in this like vignette style and not in a like plot diagram style. Mm, yeah. And it presents this slice of Priscilla's life. It kind of just like lays down themes quietly that it like trusts its audience to pick up and it's not hammering home on them. And I, I've read some people who or reviews from people who uh, felt like they wanted to see more of Priscilla's life after this point. And I'm like, I thought it was a perfect spot to end the film. Obviously, we're not going to talk about specifically where the film chooses to end, but I loved where it ended. And mm-hmm. I thought Sophia Coppola is saying a lot about what she's attempting to do with the film by ending it where she does. Yeah. And I think there's a very clear reason that it starts and ends where it starts and ends. And mm-hmm. like you, I liked it when I watched it, but then it just continued to kind of linger with me and mm-hmm. I've liked it more and more the more I've thought about it. And I definitely want to see it again. I think I want to see it at home with mm-hmm. subtitles and like that complete quiet. Cause I think, think this film really speaks to that. And I also think because of the quiet way that this film explores what it's exploring, it's really important to just like give the caveat that this is probably going to be quite diff- a difficult film for people who have been in relationships that have manipulation and emotional abuse um, and control as, as a, a part of that dynamic mm-hmm. um, or that relationship. And I think it could be a really, really tough film for, for many people to watch, but I also yeah. think it's handled really beautifully and it's not done for sensationalism. So I think it could be a really important film to watch, but, but to know that going into it. Yeah. I'm like I said, I'm, I'm just really grateful that this was made and I love how punk rock it is that it's like the complete opposite of the Elvis movie from last year in that, it's made by a 24 instead of like Warner brothers or a big studio. And it's called Priscilla. It's not called Elvis. And it's, it feels like an intentional or not a bit of like a 
middle finger to Baz Luhrmann. It's also, it's just absolutely gorgeously shot. Like it's a, it's a gorgeous film. I also, I love that Elvis's estate refused to either approve the film and also I think more notably refused permission to use any of Elvis's songs. So there are no Elvis songs in the film, um, which I think is cool. Mm-hmm. And so instead what Coppola did was use contemporary music, uh, mostly by Phoenix and by like uh, her husband who's in the band Phoenix mm-hmm. and just covered songs from the era. And I actually really liked it. And I like that this film also subverted my expectations in that it's not identical tonally to Marie Antoinette. Like they mm. feel like different biopics and different uh, films. I have a great um, trivia. IMDb. Is this interesting or not? For mm, you? Yeah. Okay. Sophia Coppola's cousin, Nicholas Cage is Priscilla Presley's ex son-in-law. Wow. That's so many de- degrees of confusing, but actually not that confusing. <laughs> yeah. It's just confusing. Like Lisa Marie Presley was married to Nicolas Cage, who is Sophia Coppola's cousin and Priscilla Presley's daughter. That's wild. Yeah, just like those two Hollywood powerhouse families of like the Coppolas and Presleys. And so the, the question is, do you find that trivia interesting or not? Um Yeah. All right. 79 of 90 people now find that trivia interesting. <laughs> I found it interesting. I'm like, oh, that's I'm sure Sophia and Nick Cage are like buds. Oh, probably. Probably get together at the family gatherings, talk well, about their movies. And they're like A24 people now. So That's true. It's, they're deep in it. It's all familial. All right. How did Priscilla make you feel? It made me feel a quiet sadness. How did it make you feel? It made me feel a gratitude for this sad, honest, and beautifully executed story. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We took a break from quietness. We took a break from sadness. And we did a double feature, one of which we're talking about now, and the other, which is in our Hunger Games special episode, Rad Rap, we saw the 2023 horror mystery thriller Thanksgiving. It was directed by Eli Roth and written by Eli Roth and Jeff Rendell. It stars Patrick Dempsey as Sheriff Eric Newland, Rick Hoffman as Thomas Wright, Gina Gershon as Amanda Collins, Milo Mannheim as Ryan, and Addison Ray as Gabby. And there's a lot of other people, and I just didn't name them, but you can look on IMTV Letterboxd or <laughs> Wikipedia. Synopsis. After a Black Friday riot ends in tragedy, a mysterious Thanksgiving-inspired killer terrorizes Plymouth, Massachusetts, the birthplace of the infamous holiday. What did you think of Thanksgiving? 
uh, I was really excited for this and I still can't believe that it happened. Like this is based off of what I think are, is the highlight of the Robert Rodriguez slash Quentin Tarantino collaboration known as Grindhouse, how they got other directors to create fake trailers for fake movies to go in between the two films when you saw them in cinemas. And Thanksgiving was one done by Eli Roth. And I remember since that movie came out, there's always been a conversation of like, they should make these movies into real movies. Like, it'd I be think so cool. Particularly Thanksgiving because it yeah. actually has the potential. Yeah. Like I think some of the other ones are just silly for silly's sake or even mm-hmm. like Rob Zombie's Werewolf Women of the SS. Like films like that have been made. Yeah. But there is no Thanksgiving. Yeah. And so it felt possible. Yeah. And when I saw that this was actually happening and it was coming out this year, I was gobsmacked. And then we saw the trailer for it. And at first I kind of, our, our buddy Jeremy messaged us and shared the same sentiment as me where it didn't seem to have the same sort of aesthetic that the fake trailer did in the grindhouse, uh, in the grindhouse film. But as I sort of, thought about that let that go and then actually watching the film i feel like not maintaining that grindhouse aesthetic makes this film a little bit more accessible and a little bit less niche feeling and puts it in the realm of something like a the the screen movies that are coming out now and i think i can't remember where this came from might have been a review on letterbox that you told me about but it is really cool to see a new slasher film in 2023. I, I don't feel like we get a lot of those outside yeah, of the screen. That movie. isn't part of a franchise already. Totally. So Eli Roth actually spoke about, and I mean, unsurprisingly, because I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. Like I wanted the tone and vibe of the trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is what he said about the choice to go in a different direction. He said, quote, We said, let's pretend that Thanksgiving was a movie from 1980 that was so offensive that every print was destroyed. All the scripts were burned. The director disappeared. The crew members changed their names. One person saved the trailer and uploaded it to the darkest corners of 4chan, and now it's made it out. So this is a 2023 reboot. Once we said that, it freed us up. (laughs) Yeah, nice. So, like, I think they felt the pressure of, like, turning this thing that was never meant to be a feature film mm-hmm. into a feature film and, and allowing it to take on a new life in 2023 and not be beholden to this thing that was made in 2007, I think is actually yeah. really important. And there's elements of it, you know, like obviously I was into the grindhouse. Like I saw it twice in the theater and I, I we've watched it together mm-hmm. many times. Um, but there's a couple like really, intense and upsetting like sexually violent moments in that trailer yeah and i was worried about especially because there's like one key one that anyone who see the trailer knows about and there's like a moment that alludes to that in the trailer um and i i was really worried about this being like an overly gratuitously sexually violent film and they took out all the sexualized violence yeah like even when like many people's bodies are brutalized in this film but never in a sexual way regardless of gender And I'm really thankful for that. Like, I think we're not in the same landscape we were in 2007. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if they had made the movie back then, then maybe making that movie, like 
the version of that trailer into a movie would have been appropriate. But I actually, I'm very happy and supportive of their choice to take it in the direction that they did. 100%, me too. And they still, while those moments are definitely the things that stick out in your head from that trailer, they find new innovative ways to pay homage to them or to do them, but without going so gratuitous and so over the top and leaning so heavily into the sexual violence of it all. And as a result, this movie was just fun and dumb. Yeah, it's like, it's definitely a 2023 slasher. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I want that. I've I've read a lot of comparisons to uh, the film My Bloody Valentine, which I think are Mm. really great um comparisons Mm -hmm. because my bloody valentine is frustrating at times but the kills are really great because in my bloody valentine they like are having this dance even though they know that these like events are happening and they they aren't stopping it and that's kind of a key part of this film too where it's like you know people are dying why aren't you closing the store why aren't you stopping the parade yeah like why do you keep doing this which is like kind of frustrating but i feel like it's also eli roth playing in the sandbox of slasher films that have come before him and being like, yeah, we know that this is ridiculous. And in real life, they would just cancel these events, but this is the world of our movie. Mm-hmm. Um, There's so many homages to classic horror movies throughout this film. It's so that's great. the thing. There's something about Eli Roth that I really like, mm-hmm. like as a person, I mean, I a haven't seen all of his films and B don't love them, mm-hmm. but there's something about, you know, I've listened to um, many episodes of his podcast history of horror. And then we watched the, um, seasons. I think there's three seasons on AMC, Eli Roth's History of Horror. And then he's been, I think, on some Shudder things, maybe. maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I could be wrong about that. But he has such a clear, earnest love of horror and like a willingness to see the new directions that horror is going in that I just really like. I just, mm-hmm. I, he feels like a guy that I shouldn't like, and yet I do. Yeah. And he's such a horror connoisseur that he's able to adapt to the times of horror because, well, yeah, probably Cabin Fever and Hostel don't necessarily stand the test of time. I like Cabin Fever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I feel like they fit in perfectly with the time that they came out in, Mm -hmm. just the way I feel that Thanksgiving fits in with now. It's a really good way to put that, that he shifts and adapts to like the horror vibe of the moment he makes a film and i think that's admirable i mean he's not breaking the box but i think it's fun to play within it sometimes Mm -hmm. there are some great kills in this and like unique kills i haven't seen before yeah i'm there's a a couple moments where they use cgi that i kind of wish they hadn't Mm. but it's not super distraction distracting and it seemed like most of it was practical Mm -hmm. um yeah it's just like rife with like over the top acting and over the top gore and like when they go like Thanksgiving themed with it, it's really awesome. Oh yeah, it's so funny. Like all the like there will be no leftovers, <laughs> all will be carved. Like it's so fucking funny. Yeah, you and I turned to each other a lot and just like kind of did the like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh bye. Um I also like I never as a Canadian, Thanksgiving for us is a Black Friday isn't really a thing, although it's like it's like things are on sale, but not, not the way it is in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, and our Thanksgiving's in October. So, and it, and it's also not tied to the same stuff. I actually don't really know why we have Thanksgiving in Canada. All I know is that we get a day off and 
often uh, have a meal with my family. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we don't really care about it nearly as much, I think, here. Mm-hmm. So I forgot that Thanksgiving is tied to Black Friday. Mm. And that's like pretty much the impetus for the film is like it's in the synopsis a Black Friday riot ends in tragedy. And I was just like, whoa, Black Friday is wild. Yeah. I hate this. Yeah. It's a nightmare. And I thought that was kind of a smart direction to take it in that isn't at all in the original trailer. I also think that this film um, has some very light acknowledgement of like the political reality of the holiday of Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. in the States um, because this is the film is taking place like one year after this Black Friday riot that ended in tragedy. They talk a lot about like you can't just forget and you can't just ignore the violence and you can't just pretend it didn't happen. And I feel like the film is acknowledging that it's aware of the holiday that it's speaking about while also saying like we know it isn't our lane to like explore that in depth. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because I wrote this in my notes right after we saw the movie, but we had a couple friends over last night and we're talking about the film and uh, one of our friends, Yen Su, said it'd be really cool to see an indigenous filmmaker make a sequel to Thanksgiving. And I had literally written that in my notes. Like it'd be (laughs) so great to like have a sequel with an indigenous director where like the colonizers are taken, taken on. (laughs) Yeah. Like I think that was so great because my head was already there because I was already feeling at the end of, by the end of this movie, I was like, I would watch a whole Thanksgiving universe of films and oh yeah i'll watch sequels to this oh yeah and like you can continue this story you can jump back in time you can do a bunch of different stuff and it just got me thinking that would be like what they wanted to do with the halloween series but maybe halloween was just the wrong holiday and they needed to do it now they can do it with thanksgiving yeah have it be like a legitimate anthology and not necessarily tied to this specific story or these characters and i think it would be great to not have eli roth be the director like start handing these to other people and let them do something with it. Totally. Right. I think that'd be really great. This movie is so gory and it's stupid and it's fun. And one of the things I liked most about it is I genuinely wanted everyone to die. Yeah. Like I didn't care about any final person or final girl. I'm like, I hate them all. They're all despicable people. Yeah. Kill them all. Yeah. That is something Eli Roth is very good with, with the characters in his films is that he makes them all just dickweeds. Like they, (laughs) so you're like, good die. I want (laughs) to see it. I don't feel bad about it. I don't want anyone to survive. Yeah. hundred percent. He fucking made Sean from boy meets world. Unlikable. Like, (laughs) Oh, and Sean's the best. Yeah. I don't know. That was something I really, really liked about it because I feel like that's been really missing in more recent horror films like we're always rooting for them and we want them to survive and sometimes i just want to watch like a bloody gory slasher fun where i'm like kill them yeah and that's very much in the vein of like a friday the 13th like all of the camp counselors are shitty people for the most (laughs) part (laughs) so you want to see them get their comeuppance yeah, this was it was pretty fun. Like, I'm not going to say it's my most favorite movie I've ever seen or my most, most favorite movie I've ever seen, but I quite liked it. I had a really good time with it. Yeah. I would watch it every Thanksgiving <laughs> and I would definitely watch sequels. 100%. How did Thanksgiving make you feel? Just so happy that it even exists. How did it make you feel? Well, I, I went on on uh, theme and I said it makes me feel thankful mm-hmm. for the silly, gory slasher fun. Beautiful. Nice. What are you thankful for? Okay, last film of the week. Yeah, and it was a mystery movie pick. 
And I chose the 1999 adventure comedy drama Dogma. It was written and directed by Kevin Smith. And it stars everybody. But <laughs> I will mention it stars Ben Affleck as Bartleby. Matt Damon as Loki. Linda Florentino as Bethany Sloan. Salma Hayek as Serendipity. Jason Lee as Azriel. Jason Mewes as Jay. Kevin Smith as Silent Bob. Alan Rickman as Metatron. Chris Rock as Rufus. And the best casting you'll ever have as God. And I won't mention it here, but it is amazing. Synopsis. An abortion clinic worker with, with a special heritage is called upon to save the existence of humanity from being negated by two renegade angels trying to exploit a loophole and re-enter heaven. Well, what'd you think of Dogma? I really love Kevin Smith and Kevin Smith movies. We covered Clerks 1, 2, and 3 previously on the show, so we've spoken at length about this. But, um, I mean, for the dedicated listener... Our plan next year is to be Jane Silent Bob for Halloween. Yeah. Um, and to have the caliber of our saw photo shoot with some Jay and Silent Bob uh photo shoots. And I've mentioned that to some folks who've been like, Oh, your costumes were so cool this year. What are you gonna be next year? And I've had two people be like, I don't know who Kevin Smith is. Mm. And I'm like, Oh, but like Dogma, Jay and Silent Bob, like clerks. Cricket. Comic book man, even. And they're like, nope. Crickets. Yeah. And I'm just like, whoa. So I don't. I just always assume that Kevin Smith's like a really well-known director. And like even like, you know, being like Tusk. Like, have you heard of Tusk? Mm-hmm. Nope. Um, which I don't I don't know how I feel about that, because I just Kevin Smith is a person that and we've talked at length about this. So I'm not going to talk about it too much, but I just like him. Yeah, I don't think all of his movies are 10 out of 10. Most of them aren't even close. Mm-hmm. But I really like him and I like his approach to life and his approach to filmmaking. And I love a filmmaker who has like a crew that just keeps working with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, revisiting this was really great. I've, I really hadn't seen any I don't think Kevin Smith films until you and I started dating and you were a big fan of him mm-hmm. um, and we watched them all and I, I really fell in love with them but I haven't necessarily rewatched most of them in rewatching Dogma I ab- think it is objectively his best film yeah it's uh, his magnum opus if you will now I haven't seen Cop Out or Yoga Hosers but I don't feel like they would take <laughs> Dogma yeah um, Dogma's place is his best I think that it is technically and thematically his best film is it my yeah. favorite film of his? No. Is that one I really, really like? Yes. Yeah. You said you think this is your favorite Kevin Smith film. I think it is. Um, and it, that could be tied to this, I believe, being the first Kevin Smith film that I ever saw. And I wanted to see it so badly because it came out. So it was 1999 and my my parents owned it on DVD. So probably around that time, I would have been like 10 or 11 and it was one of it was actually one of the rare instances where I believe my mom said I couldn't watch it. Why? I think because of the language. Maybe. Weird. I, I, that surprises I, me. I don't know. I don't know for sure the reason, but it was a movie for grownups, and I wasn't allowed to watch it. So what I would do is just like obsessively look at the cover art, <laughs> <laughs> and just be like, "Oh, I'm going to watch this one day." And I think <laughs> that I secretly watched it. Oh, you rebel. And I was like, I was not allowed to. I'm, I might be mixing up memories, but 
what I what I have in my mind right now is that I watched it on my own. And then later I either told when my mom went to watch it on her own, I either told her or she found out that I had watched it. So then she was just like, well, you've seen it. So we'll just watch it together. Sounds accurate. Yeah. So from then on, I think I was too, I think I was too young <laughs> to, to watch it because, um, of course, just so much of it goes over my head. And I'm just like, I like the goofy, loud one and quiet one. Um, but it resonated with me enough for me to be like Kevin Smith. And wanted to like go see and and to seek out other films of his because I knew like my uncle had the special edition of Clerks and my mom also owned Chasing Amy and I'm like hey some of these people on the cover are the same as in Dogma, <laughs> um, and yeah that's where it all started for me with Kevin Smith movies and I still found enjoyment, you know the the themes and the ideas and the dialogue aside, it's a pretty easy movie for a young person to glom onto because it's just kind of like a road trip movie of yeah. good versus evil. And it is it's it's really smart. I think one of Kevin Smith's smartest movies. Mm-hmm. Like it has some things it wants to say, and you know, knowing him and his story, it's coming from a very personal place. But it's also just silly and really really funny. And so I think. Yes, if you're watching that when you're young, maybe the intellectual aspects of it are going to kind of not totally land yet. But I could totally see just like enjoying the shit monster and Jay and Silent Bob and all of these different angels and apostles and demons falling from the sky. And, you know, it's it's just fun. And it's a it's a good ensemble cast film. I really love watching this kind of collision of the earnest returning players in Kevin Smith's cast of friends that he always has. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of those have been there from beginning to end. And there's some who like, you know, the Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, weren't they weren't there at the very beginning and they're not really there now. But there was a period where especially Ben Affleck was in a lot of his films. So seeing kind of that, through, but also then with Alan Rickman and Chris Rock and Selma Hayek and, mm-hmm. you know, all of the and George Carlin to like kind of see that collision of the two and to see it done so well. I mean, I'm sure, you know, every story about this film because you have this special edition DVD and I'm sure you've watched all the things. And I know mm-hmm. you've watched like an evening with Kevin Smith a million times, but um I love what Kevin Smith said about specifically having Jason Mewes and Alan Rickman in the same film. (laughs) He said that he liked the idea of, quote, a Shakespearean trained actor of the highest order next to a dude from New Jersey. And he said, I really impressed upon Jason that he had to be prepared for this movie. There are real actors in this one. We kept telling him. And then I'm sure you know this. Oh, it's such a good story. But in response, Jason Mewes memorized the entire script. Because he, quote, didn't want to piss off that Rickman dude. <laughs> yes, so funny. And I could just picture him saying it. I love Jason Mewes. I love him so much. And I will never forgive you for convincing me that he was also going to be there when we saw Kevin Smith for Jay and Silent Bob return. Reboot. Reboot. Yeah. You were like, Jason Mewes is going to be there. And I'm like, I don't think he is. And you're like, no, he is. And then he wasn't. And I was devastated. Mm-hmm. That is one of my life goals is to see an event with both of them there. Mm -hmm. I don't need to meet him. I just want to, I just, I think he's so funny. Yeah. 
No, he is. And he's just like, just like a little puppy dog. It's, it's so funny. Like there's been so many stories that I've heard Kevin Smith tell over the years with and about Jason Mewes. He's such an interesting person with such like a complex and often sad background of his life coming up. But both of those guys, like both of these guys have ended up in just such a beautiful place in their lives, just in their outlook in the world and how they are now, like with family and with themselves and how they reflect. And yeah, those are two, two beautiful guys that have been like a joy to follow and not just be like, oh, these guys just are the same people. Yeah, they've had so much growth and a lot of ups and downs and and they speak about that now and it's really cool to see this film that is so strong because yeah. I love what Kevin Smith's doing now personally. But when I watch this, I'm like, I mean, if he doesn't want to do it, obviously keep doing what you're doing, Kevin Smith. But I'd really love to see a movie with like this intentionality again mm-hmm. from him and this yeah. level of craft again, even though I will continue to watch his other movies that he makes um, and, and listen to his talks and mm-hmm. stuff. I think that, yeah, like on top of this just being like his best film, like I just think it's so clever, it's so obnoxious, and yet it's so thoughtful. Like there, this has some of his best dialogue, I think, that he's written. Yeah. And some of the ideas that are presented, well, some of them aren't necessarily new, but the way it's presented and delivered feels just, it feels so weighty, especially now hearing them as an adult person. (laughs) And I was like super surprised. I'm always ready when I go to revisit particular films and Kevin Smith is one filmmaker that I was like, ah, it's going to be super offensive. Mm -hmm. And I like, I'm not saying it was completely inoffensive, but it was not bad. Yeah. It was pretty good. It was like the things that I was like, eh, like they felt very of the time and not, not like clerks too, which I have a real problem with. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, of course I think there's a level of offense that, is lost on me because I didn't go to Catholic school like you and I wasn't raised in a religious environment at all. Um, people were mad about this movie. Mm-hmm. Sure. You also know the story of like Kevin Smith joined protests against his own film. Yeah. He, <laughs> in one of his stories, he said that like he joined and he, he and some of his buds went home and made pro- protest signs <laughs> and his said dogma is dog shit. And then he showed up and somebody like an old Catholic woman was like, can you just take off the bad word? And he's like, but then it says dogma's dog. <laughs> <laughs> and she didn't know he was the director of the film. No, 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 no. I love that. Um, something I really loved that when I was doing up my notes is Roger Ebert, Roger Ebert, homeboy of the show. Uh, a quote from him is, we are actually free in this country to disagree about religion and blasphemy is not a crime. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, Roger Ebert. <laughs> So you don't have to like this movie. And if you think that you wouldn't, then don't watch it. That's totally okay. Um, I think this movie has one of the all-time great endings in film. Not like a profound ending, but just a wonderful ending. The casting of God is so great. And there's this moment that just like really stuck with me this time where a character asks God, like, why are humans here? And the response, I was like, yeah, that's it. That is why humans are here. And I think the movie's worth it for that alone. Um, now, it, I, we alluded to this when we were talking about Koyanis. Koyanis Gatsi. Yep. Um, the 
sometimes importance of keeping physical media. We have called our DVD collection several times and I kind of wish we hadn't now. Mm-hmm. I think there's things we may have gotten rid of that we shouldn't have. And we've definitely held on to box sets of some shows that I'm glad we have because you never know when all of a sudden it's not going to be anywhere and the rights, whoever's holding the rights is going to, you know, keep it locked down. So this film is owned by the the rights to dogma are owned by the Weinsteins. Mm-hmm. Big thumbs down, awful, terrible. And they, they won't release the rights. Kevin Smith has made offers and apparently they've always been scoffed at. Um, and so you can't stream or rent this anywhere. Mm. Like you can't even rent it digitally. So the only way to have it is to have a DVD copy of it, um, which I think you can buy places like you can get a DVD copy of Dogma. But we were able to watch it. And it, it didn't even occur to me that it wouldn't be rentable somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I like what Kevin Smith says about this. And I think he says this somberly, but he says, quote, my movie about angels is owned by the devil himself. Oh, fuck. Yeah. That's that sucks so much. It, it, what especially sucks is that like the Weinstein's name are, aren't even in the credits on this movie. Like, I think they privately own it. Like it's not the Weinstein company. I think that they yeah. personally funded it. Yeah. Like that just, it sucks. It sucks so much, but on, on, you know, us owning it, I've just, I feel like I've entered a new era where I'm just really reveling in physical media. Like you and I have been buying a lot of vinyls. Like we, we all, we always, we've had a record player for a long time and we've had a collection of vinyls, but we didn't really, we kind of had them in the other room, didn't really make a priority of them, but we moved things around. And now I, I find myself wanting to pop on records all the time. And I find myself like going to our DVD shelves and like wanting to pull out DVDs and Blu-rays and throw those on instead of, you know, going through streaming services or anything like that. There's just something really that I really love about how tangible it is to pull out a case and open it up and put and put in the disc and and the sound and visuals are better on a physical disc. So yeah, you know, not when you've watched it too many times and it's skipping, but otherwise, <laughs> yeah. yes. I, it was really it was really lovely to revisit this film. It just warmed that spot in my heart that really loves Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes and made me amped up to be Jay and Silent Bob for Halloween next year. Yeah. How does this make you feel? Dogma makes me feel delighted by this smart resident 90s film. You? Uh, it made me just feel a newfound appreciation for it and all of its clever shenanigans. Dads of the week. Who are they? Let's talk about it. Who's your bad dad nominee? I there were some options. Mm-hmm. I picked Thomas Wright, the Wright Mart owner and father in Thanksgiving. Mm, that's that's good. Yeah. I mean, he's just like a bad dude, like a Jeff Bezos in the making kind of guy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um cares about the bottom line more than people's lives and when his daughter is like literally being threatened by an unnamed killer who has killed people, like we know that it's not just some troll. He doesn't really seem all that concerned about helping her considering, considering that he's super, super rich. He doesn't really do anything. Um, so he just kind of sucks. Yeah. You, um, I chose master Yuan. Oh yeah. From farewell. My concubine. Yeah. Cause it, he, he's complicated because 
I feel like while there is what he's doing by taking in these these young boys and giving them a place to live, giving them food and giving them a bed to sleep in, is that enough? If you're no, if, if you're, you're abusing them, if you're also <laughs> cruel to them yeah. and abusive. No, that was the yours is the right choice for sure. I'll give you that. Okay, so Master Yuan, don't be, don't our, be our dad. dad. Rad dad. I picked Jane Silent Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I think they've been our rad dads. I think Silent Bob's been our rad dad before. I think you're right. I mean, I chose them just because I think, you know, despite the mouth on Jay at some points in Dogma, they're both well-intentioned and they seek to do right by those that are important to them, at least in this film. And they're willing to help and step up where they need to. And despite those language choices, they are respectful. Who'd you pick? So same film, but I picked Rufus, played by Chris Rock. That's really good. Um, I feel like, so the character of Bethany has all of these people kind of telling her what she needs to do. And I mean, Metatron is kind of the like more frustrating one because he'll just kind of pop down and be like, you must do this and then leave. Mm -hmm. And then, yes, I, I agree with you about Jay and Silent Bob, but they're kind of pests. And yeah. sometimes like what they want is getting in the way or, you know, Jason Mewes or the character of Jay can get really like, I don't like this. Yeah. Um, but Rufus, I feel like is that really lovely balance between Jay and Silent Bob and Metatron mm-hmm. of like supportive. And he's there the, like once he's there, he is there every step of the way. But he's also going to say what he thinks mm-hmm. and going to like call out what he thinks are silly actions or like bad attitudes or, you know, like speak up for himself as well, like Mm -hmm. as the 13th apostle. Um, And I think where things net out with him and Bethany, by the end of the film, you can see just how important he was as a mentor and guide for her. Mm -hmm. Um, I just really like the character. Yeah, And there's actually like, I was taken with a lot of like sweet, gentler moments between Rufus and Bethany on this watch. And it's like, good on Chris Rock. <laughs> because, I mean, he's he's hilarious. I mean, obviously, we absolutely decimated Spiral. Yeah. But I think Chris Rock is a funny guy. Like, he's he's got a very good comedic sensibility. But I liked the balance between when he's, like, playing Chris Rock and when he's this more subtle character of Rufus. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that is a great choice. And I'm here for it. Okay. Rufus. Be your dad. dad. Okay. We're going to hit you with a rad wreck. It's a little bit of a weird one, but we're excited about it. And the rad wreck is simply to accept and rehome free art. This was brought on by our good buddy, Ashley, who is the fine art teacher at your school. And is an incredible artist. But we went over to her place for our Halloween party. She was the one that took all of the excellent photos of us in our Saw costumes that we posted. But she had this awesome piece that I guess she only brings out for Halloween that she made. She says she made it in university. Yep. But it's essentially just this wax bust of 
herself? I don't think it's herself. But like a femme person. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> there are many in the yeah. world. Um, Not just her. But uh, it's so creepy, but cool. And it's like a drippy wax bust. Yeah. And we're like, oh my God, we love that. And she couldn't wait to offload it. She's she was like, just like, you can have it. Yeah. And I was like, seriously though? And there was this, this funny moment because she had it out as a Halloween decoration where I was like, oh, can we take it tonight? And there's this like moment of hesitations where you could see her be like, well, I, it works for Halloween. But then her brain be like, but if I don't give it to them now, I might never get rid of it. Yeah. And then she was like, yes, take it. And then we had her stop by the house before we we went and saw Stop Making Sense again um, this week. Transcendent experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and we showed her where we where we put her. We've named her. Mm-hmm. We've named her Eleanor Whispers. Eleanor Whispers. And so we showed her and Ashley just laughed and said, oh, one man's trash. <laughs> and I was like, you really didn't want it? And she said, not at all. Well, it's nuts too because we were like looking it up after the fact and you said that Things like that will typically go for like a few grand. Yeah. If you wanted like an artist made wax bust. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it too. I say good morning. I always go into that room and open up the drapes every day. And it's like, I would say good morning to Eleanor. It's giving, um, a what's the Gladys from friends <laughs> with like much more refinement. Yes. Yeah. It's uh super cool. But if you have friends that are, that have art or, pieces that maybe just aren't for them anymore or they want to offload or maybe they don't know they want to offload it but you're just like i love this can i have it (laughs) (laughs) do it fill your home with rehomed art absolutely we have the creepiest clown painting that we found and we did not find it that is a lie you were rewriting history when we first moved out in 2012 my brother and his friend Alex right. specifically went garage sailing to find us what they thought would be the ugliest piece of art and then said, because we gave it to you as a housewarming gift, you have to put it up. That's the story. It's the creepiest clown. And it says Petunia on it. Yeah. So it's Petunia the clown. I don't want to put Petunia up. <laughs> <laughs> but we have to. Because <laughs> it was a housewarming gift. We have kept it for 11 years. Yeah. So, accept, find, and rehome free art. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Like I mentioned off the top, go check out our rad rap on the Hunger Games series. It's pretty sweet. You can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. You can get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these snoochy boochies this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.